0: Welcome back for even more BS of the suns here on Bright Side of the Sun. So no fancy intro for this one. This is just uh, me and Dave deciding that we didn't say enough in 30 minutes there with Lon Babby. and we're we're gonna we're gonna come back and we're gonna say a few things. So Chris Havis, Dave King, back here, same uh, same podcast, but different cut up here on the audio. Dave, just. Overall thoughts. We talked to Lon Babby a little earlier, and of course, he can't answer some questions. We you, you poked as much as you could. I think you asked uh, the same question three times and got three uh, different versions of no answer. But <laughs> so, exactly, yeah. <laughs> and you know what? It's that's just what he has to do. I mean, it is what it is. I mean, I don't know if he would answer that question if he was talking to John Gambadoro or Zach Lowe or something like that. But I'm pretty sure that there are some some guidelines and you know things that he's not allowed to go into, and you know he is a former slash current lawyer, so he knows how to tiptoe around those things very carefully and, and hide away from that stuff. But was, was there anything revealing? Was there anything that stood out from, from what Lon was talking to you about there? Did he kind of shed any light to you on those questions while not answering them?
1: You know, <laughs> he, he really didn't. Uh, I tried several different ways, uh, you know, because I think it's all about how you ask the question and how you couch the question and give them an opportunity to answer something that they can answer without saying too much, and then occasionally saying too much, but being okay with it because it was in the context of something they wanted to say. I didn't succeed on that totally. I think, uh, one, you know, I took a couple of things away from that. I think uh, um, it was interesting how Lon said that I was talking to him about the uh, four and five year contracts versus the two and three year contracts. And I wanted to have a follow up with him, but we ran out of time. Um, he was on a tighter schedule than we usually do on these podcasts, but I wanted to ask a follow-up. The same agent, Rich Paul, was big on a two-year deal for LeBron James so he can get the most money, and he was that same agent wanted a five-year deal for Eric Bledsoe. So I, I think, you know, saying reading between the lines, I think the agent, uh, Rich Paul, wanted the uh, the five-year commitment. On Bledsoe, partially because of the injury history, uh, because you know that's that's just not been his par for the course. He took a one-year deal for, deal for Kevin Serafin this summer, and a two-year deal for LeBron James, and suddenly a five-year deal for the Suns for Eric Bledsoe. So I think uh, <clears throat> I think there had to be some something else besides the uh, the salary cap, and that right, Bledsoe doesn't want to take the chance to be on the market again in two years, simply because. There may be more injury issues. Now, this isn't to say that there's something seriously wrong with Blutsoe's knee. If you've watched him at all, this uh, training camp, he looks faster than ever and he looks more determined than ever, and he clearly had a summer to get in shape where he wasn't being held back at all physically. So he, I don't think he's hiding anything. I just think there, there's probably a diagnosis that says, hey, look, this might not last uh, for, the, for another five or ten years, there might be something that that's recurring here, and we should hedge our bets by getting guaranteed money. So I thought that was quite interesting, but I didn't get to delve into it as much as I wanted to. As long.
0: Yeah. And, and to kind of pull the curtain back a little bit more on what you said there in terms of the time restraint, we, we asked our meat and potatoes questions. We didn't really get to the side dishes and the salad and dessert and all that, that we wanted to get into. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of the main topics that we wanted to hit on, but we didn't get into a lot of those, like you said, just the minutia of the follow-up and, you know, talking about the contracts, it's all, it's all relative at the end of the day to the player and the agent and what's more valuable. A lot of players value the years because there's security in years. A lot of players value the, the money and then the freedom and flexibility, you know, so shorter years, maybe bigger per year averages or, or whatever the case may be. And we saw with Channing Frye, at the end of the day for him, at his age and his stage of his career, it was, hey, I'm going to take this contract that's actually going to pay me more in the four-year contract I think he signed than in the first eight years of his NBA career collectively. And then with Eric Bledsoe versus uh, LeBron James, as you mentioned that. 2 years and then I have an opportunity to make more when there's going to be more money on the table. And you know, Eric Bledsoe, 24 years old, has a lot of potential. You know, we kind of know who he is already a little bit and there's potential for him to get better, but you know, I think that he took a contract that's going to float him into that 28-29 year old range. And then he'll have the ability to still grab another four or five year fairly big money to really big money contract if he ends up proving that he's a max type player during this one. So, yeah, the contract stuff I thought was interesting. The The main question that I wanted to ask him contract wise, because I'm not a numbers guy, a cap guy, that, that's normally your lane that you stay in. But the the, the different flexibility in contract sizes and lengths and numbers that's a big thing when it comes to trades, future moves, and being able to do things long term with your team. And I liked how, you know, Lon kind of patted himself on the back and he should. This team went from having a lot of very uniform contracts to now having a lot of flexibility along the the entire roster there of different contract sizes and lengths and different values to them where they can open themselves up to some more interesting trade opportunities down the road. I I liked how he patted himself on the back and mentioned that, you know, after 4 years they're finally at a place where they don't have any bad contracts, and I think I agree with them. I don't think there's any liabilities outside of an injury that might happen, but talking full health, there's no liability contracts on this roster.
1: No, there really isn't. All the big contracts they gave out are to 24 and 25-year-olds, so the next two, three, four years, they're still in their prime. Uh, they they declined, I guess, to give a contract to Channing Frye, who's 31 years old, of, of more value than they gave Isaiah Thomas so between the two you know, Fry fit a niche that uh, the Suns did not totally replace but I think the contract to Isaiah Thomas is better than the contract that Channing Fry got so uh, the Suns did make the right decisions on the right aged players and uh, guys who, who will grow into their contracts and they didn't really overpay I mean you could, you could say possibly that Eric Bledsoe was overpaid but that's only if you assume he's going to be injured for a lot of the contract because the way the cap is going to go up even he's going to be considered underpaid in a couple of years. And uh that you know that that puts the Suns in a really good position.
0: So you're our resident cap guy and to put you on the spot here cuz I wasn't able to google it quick enough. What where are the Suns at relative to this current cap that's going to be on the team for for this year presumably?
1: Oh gosh, this current year they I think they have just under 5 million left if I can if I get that right from memory. Um, so they could absorb up to five million more than they send out in a trade is that was that your question?
0: Well, just basically seeing like okay, the caps at sixty and they have fifty five million in guaranteed contracts, like something like just using fake numbers there, of course, but so you're saying no, they actually, have about the cap five... is,
1: the cap is sixty three and they're about fifty eight
0: okay, so. When you look at that, Channing Frye signs a four-year deal with the Orlando Magic where he's, you know, making more, as I said, during this four-year deal than he did for his entire career. I'm kind of curious. I I don't know. I mean, hindsight is 2020, and it is what it is, but I'm kind of curious if the Suns could have maybe finagled things a little bit and potentially brought him back, like run themselves right at the cap number or a little bit over the cap if, you know, Sarver is willing to pay the tax. But I'm wondering if they could have pushed themselves over the cap, kept Channing Frye, and granted, we talk about sometimes depth, quality of depth can be a gift and a curse because you have some guys that might get a little disgruntled if they don't know their role and they don't know how to stay in their in their role at the NBA level, which is probably one of the hardest things for a really talented guy to do. But I think the loss of Channing Fry is the biggest reason why I don't think that this team is going to jump the hump and become a playoff team. But I'm curious if if they kind of look back and go. I wonder if we might have been able to move some things around and keep Channing, and that would have, at least in my opinion, have pushed this team probably over one or two teams in the Western Conference to being not only just a playoff contender, but maybe one of those teams that you kind of pencil in at the beginning of the season.
1: Well, I think if I if I st- if I put my my feet in the lawn shoes, which um, you know it's going to be obviously he's a lot smarter than I am, but uh, really what you've got here is a situation that the Suns. Didn't have the run of free agency. The Suns, and this is what a lot of uh, uh, casual and even really hot basketball fans don't realize, is that trades and, and free agent contracts are not a one-sided deal. It's not that the Suns didn't offer, could have gone a little bit more for Channing Fry. The the hindsight's 2020, and at the time, Channing Fry wanted that eight million dollars a year. The Suns did think they had a chance, at least, to talk to LeBron James. And and if you're if you're wanting to leave room open for him and possibly another guy before you resign Bledsoe, then you're going to hold off on signing, bringing back Channing Fry a 31 year old who is a stretch four who could possibly have been supplanted by, say, a Chris Bosh, for example, or Kevin Love. If you thought you were going to be potentially acquiring Kevin Love this summer. Why give $8 million a year to Channing Fry, in a contract you can't trade even? Because the Suns also, you know, at the beginning of the summer, as you say now, the Suns have a nice range of types of, of sizes of contracts that really can help trade. Um, mm-hmm. in, in the beginning of the summer, they didn't. They didn't have anybody who was making more than $3 million a year um, that they could trade because you're you not, not going to trade Goran Dragic. Um, so I'm taking him off the off the table there. But they really didn't have anyone else. could trade contract wise so um so i guess what i'm saying is if channing fry had waited until july i am i think the suns definitely would have brought him back over anthony Tolliver. but chin fry didn't want to wait and the suns weren't going to uh commit the money at the time he wanted that's my guess
0: yeah yeah and again hindsight 2020 and just kind of you know prognosticating and projecting and predicting and all that stuff after things have already happened. Um this is not NBA 2K, so we can't do those kind of things and uh retroactively make things right, but I'm just that, that that's one of the things I think that is is interesting with the Suns team is that, you know, how how are they going to go about using, you know, extra cap room because it's when you look at a playoff team versus a non-playoff team like the news that came out um, a little bit earlier with Michael Carter Williams probably going to miss 50 games. So you take a, a a terrible team and you make them just you know just astronomically more terrible. But when you're when you're a team that's in like Philly spot, you're not looking to absorb contracts. You're not willing to go over the cap. You're trying to get better with youth and get rid of contracts and trying to build from oh, the ground no, no. up.
1: Come on, Chris. Don't say Philly's trying to get better with youth. They're trying to put the worst possible team in history on the court. And I wouldn't be surprised. And this, sorry, this is very biased on my part and very uninformed. But I get the feeling Sam Hinkie is not too disappointed that he lost his point guard. Fifty games, he already drafted two guys who won't even play this year, and he wants the highest pick he can possibly get next year. He's rebuilding this team from in the with the top three picks in the draft, and so far, you know, it's working okay for him. Um, and we can talk about the lottery changes. That's another thing I wanted to touch on with Lon about the potential lottery changes. But the way he wasn't answering questions really today, he might not have answered that one either.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, anything that's potentially going to change, I think, is going to be tough for for him to answer in his shoes with where he's at and you know guidelines right, exactly. and all that
1: he's stuff. Not a, he's not a speculator like us. Yeah. He, it's actually his world, his job. So he's not going to speculate. Just like I wouldn't speculate on stuff for my real job. Um, with people who wanted to call me up and ask me questions, so I'm not, I'm not dissing Lawn at all. I'm just saying that uh, things we might want to know an insider's point of view, we're better off asking an Amin El Hassan than we are a Lawn Babby because Amin's no longer in the game.
0: Yeah, and, and well, where I was going with that with the Philadelphia and Phoenix comparison because you know they were neck and neck as 29 and 30 last year as the teams projected to be the two worst in the league, and uh, you know one of those things happened, um, but definitely not the other. with with phoenix though i'm kind of curious and interested and and you know questions that lon babby won't answer and and probably are better to ask a guy like robert sarver but then again he might just say things that he thinks people want to hear but when you have that cushion you have a little bit of salary cap you have you know some contracts that are tradable you have a very talented deep roster a lot of youngsters that might be appealing to other teams um I mentioned Philly a minute ago they might need a point guard. So I mean we have a few of those here in Phoenix, but you know what are they going to give back? Nothing cuz they already gave away all they their could, talented they NBA players.
1: Send beat over. Yeah. <laughs>
0: well they they already gave away all their talented NBA players. Um that is young if and Jim so
1: you you are chomping at the bit or so, exactly. for and So Exactly.
0: Yeah. So I mean, I'm curious to see like if you know, if, if the Suns are gonna go over the cap this season with a move, you know, when, when you're on the fringe of the playoffs, does it change your mindset? Well, Do you make problem, a move?
1: Chris, the problem is the Suns actually are not in a position to actually go over the cap. They if you start the summer under the cap, you can't go over in a deal. You can go up to the cap in a deal and then you've got something called this room exception, which is two and a half million dollars. A year, you could sign someone over and above that afterwards, but you cannot actually make a trade to put yourself over the cap. Now, teams that are already over the cap, then they can continue to go over the cap. But um, so the Suns really can only do a five million dollar cushion on transactions, bringing up to five million dollars more back in than they send out. So, and with all the with all those nice contracts you just talked about a little while ago. None of those are tradable until January, so it, even even if the funds wanted to do a swap like that, they're still stuck with the rookie-scale guys. Uh, so you really can't bring in a $15 million-a-year player until at least around the, the trade deadline.
0: Yeah, and that's that's when you would make a move in the NBA, anyways. Is, is after that, and so so basically, in the NBA's eyes, gluttony is only okay if you're already obese. So you, if you're already over the salary cap and you've already abused the rules in the system, continue to just well, muck it up. Him, yeah, right, just just exactly. keep abusing it. That that's fine. But you guys that kind of played within the rules, we're not going to let you go over the line <laughs> to get better. So all, all you all you do-gooders out there, you keep doing good. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, I just I think that's an interesting plot line with the Phoenix Suns, especially when you look at a guy like we we Talked about this off the air a little bit. Gerald Green is a guy that I think would be extremely attractive to a lot of playoff contending type teams as that you know January February acquisition of athletic guy that can play two positions that can shoot the three. That that's always the thing that playoff teams oh, yeah. are looking for. I mean,
1: and we talked about we talked about Oklahoma City as being yeah. a team that really could use a score, but but. Um, I they don't have anything to send back. That's Jeremy better. Lamb.
0: Jeremy Lamb. Everybody wants. to Or we can we can ask no. him for James Harden, can't we? Or is that no? We can't do that anymore. <laughs>
1: yeah. No, Jeremy Lamb. I mean, that's better than anybody the Suns already have pushing for minutes. Jeremy Lamb. I mean, really, is he worth more than um, that? All the guard, you know, the guards that are already in place is. Is he someone you're going to acquire oh, no, is going to eventually no. beat out Eric Bledsoe?
0: It no, would it or, would be no. yeah you would you would ask for the ghost of Kendrick Perkins past or you'd look at maybe one of those bigs if you're enticed enough by like maybe a Nick Collison is a one year band aid off the bench veteran power forward. Well, yeah, or, but,
1: but Oklahoma City isn't going to want to yeah. give him up because they're going to the playoffs. Exactly, really, all they're going to be willing to give up. And beauty's in the eye of the beholder. I'm sure at least a few people listening to this would say Perry Jones is a guy we should go get. I'm not a big fan of Perry Jones because he can't he can't get a starting gig or, or a regular rotation gig on a team that really could use an athletic another athletic young player. Um, same with Jeremy Lamb, he proved himself to be limited. And, and I'm I'm looking at only acquiring people that are better than people we already have on the roster. And I'm not seeing that on Oklahoma City after the top three or four guys. And they're not going to trade the top three or four
0: guys. Yeah. And that's where, you know, just um, Ger- Gerald Green's name is going to get thrown around probably in the top 10, maybe top five of trade rumors throughout the year, whether he gets traded oh, yeah. or not. I, I think that he's going to be one of those names just because of the fact that he's kind of pushed out of the rotation a little bit here. He showed he was a little disgruntled last year, and I'm sure that'll kind of come up a little bit this year as see, well. You say
1: that I didn't. I never saw the disgruntled last year. Where did you see the disgruntled last year?
0: Uh, well, well, that's coming from people that said that they've talked to him and said that he came off disgruntled. Like other other media folk and alike out here in Phoenix have said okay. that. Yeah I, yeah, I didn't. see I didn't though. see it really either. But then again, maybe I'm just not good at picking that stuff out. Of you know, I I see more of the positives and the negatives and things, despite people may think my disposition is more negative when I when I write or go about on things, but. Yeah, I didn't didn't really see it myself either, but, you know, a lot of people had said that he was a little disgruntled when he got the DNPs, but, you know, you're going to be. If you hit five threes the night before and then you get a DNP the next night and you're perfectly healthy, anybody would be a little upset. Um, but yeah, he'll, he'll get floated around the trade rumors. And then, you know, depending on how you value, you talked about the first round picks in the next couple of years worth of drafts and, you know, in adjacent to the salary cap going up, those are going to be much more valuable because of the, yeah, that, I, that, I those become that those become real valuable. The young guys, you already have become valuable. Gerald Green is obviously valuable. So this team as much as we talked about last year. It's just a roster of assets. I think this year they might have more assets and be might, maybe even more attractive.
1: They, I think they are going to be more attractive because they had a good year playing. Now, if they start off, these same players start off this year at the same level or, you know, at least not a big drop-off and possibly even better, they are assets that, that Sunsand wanted them to be this summer or or last trade deadline. But last trade deadline in this summer, there was still a little bit too much worry, I think, around the league of flashing the pan and that our players, you know, you know the players still weren't being given the credit that they were earning on on the court. So another half season. Yeah, definitely. I think if they prove it, then, then all of a sudden the Suns are a team full of playable assets for playoff teams and the Suns just have too many of them to keep them happy through the year. So yeah, there might be one or two jettisoned for future, um, assets. Now talking about the future, I really liked, uh, um, well, I, I, like bringing, I wanted to bring out the concept of the draft picks being even, even more valuable in the future because the rookie scale is set in stone. It's not a percentage of the cap like mass contracts are. Uh, the rookie scale is the rookie scale. And so on a $90 million cap, if you can get your first round pick to be between $1 and $3 million a year, that's huge. And so those picks are going to be even more valuable than they've ever been, I think even if they inch the rookie scale up a little bit, it's not going to be proportional to a 50% increase in the cap or a 40% increase in the cap that is going to happen. And it will happen to the veteran player contracts because when the cap goes up, salaries go up, max, max contracts go up, mid-level go up. And so the exceptions, the teams who, you know, played poorly, as you mentioned a few minutes ago can continue to play poorly. The mid-level exception will be in the eight to $9 million a year range and and players eyes are just going to get biggest saucers, and so veteran contracts are going to get really expensive, and rookie deals are going to be are going to be the best assets even more so than they are today
0: one I want to dive into the draft stuff, and I have some of that pulled up here that I want to talk about because I know that you're interested in that as well with like the potential changes and how that might affect things but I wanted to ask Lon and I had the question queued up in my mind and I was ready to blurt it out. But the way he was answering um, your questions, I immediately just just discarded that and went in a different direction. But I'm really curious of what people around the NBA think. And I'm not the first guy that thought of this. I think the first guy that I heard say it out loud was Bill Simmons years ago, like not recently, like maybe four or five, six years ago. Had mentioned uh, NBA salary cap being similar to a movie budget where the production team will be given $50 million to fill their uh, their cast and then they 're given an unlimited amount of money for their a plus star that gets brought on like Tom Cruise. you get your yeah. fifty million, and then we 're going to give you know the rest of the the rest of the cast as a budget, kind of like a salary cap so i 'm curious what n b a people internally think of that kind of a concept of giving LeBron and Kobe and those guys that are, are much more valuable to the franchise more than just X's and O's on the court and then having a salary cap for the rest of the roster I mean alienates the rest of the roster to a degree but especially if you have multiple stars like OKC or Miami you know previously those kind of scenarios will end up alienating people but if you have like that superstar you can do whatever the heck you want with and then you have the rest of your salary cap I'm kind of curious what the league thinks of that.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting, and he never would have answered the question. Yeah, uh, but I think it's a great one, and it's one—it's a—it's a variation that I hadn't considered today when I was talking to him because I was saying, "Well, how can you even sustain a max, uh, an unlimited max, but have still have a salary cap?" And he agreed. He said, "Yeah, well, that was the whole point of putting the max salary in was to uh, build up the middle class, or yeah, you know, the middle class, and that's what he was saying. He was there." When they, were, when they were negotiating that in. So I think uh, if you did something like unlimiting the max salary again, it would have to be outside the cap, or it just makes for an unmanageable situation. Then your guys like Gerald Green uh, will be out of the league and never get back in because a team would rather have a rookie dude who would take a minimum in um, – Green would have done that, I guess, for New Jersey a couple of years ago, but he never would have gotten the three-year, $9 million contract from, um, uh, oh, God, I forget who gave it to him. Indiana? Yeah, Indiana gave it to him. Um, and, and, and he'd never have be uh, up for a nice five, $6 million this next year, probably, uh, because the middle class will be squeezed right out, so people in their late 20s will disappear from the league in, in place of guys who are willing to take the minimum.
0: This is probably a bad example of this because, you know, when you think of Robert Ory, he's probably in the upper echelon of role players historically in the NBA, like not superstars and not stars, but like that role player that does a lot and, and isn't recognized as being a star. But when you have the unlimited max like you did all the way up until the negotiations, you know, in the late 90s. The unlimited max creates a situation where like the middle class and the lower class are living off of the scraps, you know, one, two, three million dollar contracts. And then the the big time names are getting their 25 and 30. And then now with the change, when you cap out the maxes, it makes the middle class guys, you know, to a certain extent, like maybe a guy like Marcus Morris, get inflated contracts of getting maybe five million dollars a year, where if he was playing in the late 90s, he probably would have only gotten one, two or three million, maybe a little bit less than that to play because of his role and just where he falls on the hierarchy of a team so there, there's the pros and the cons on both sides of it I mean the middle class gets paid a little bit more your superstars get paid probably less than what they're actually valued at um, it's it just kind of you got to take but,
1: guess who, but, but Lon, Lon talked about that it's all about revenues yeah but on the agent side it's all about uh, it's all about the money they make as well and if you've got the unlimited max which squeeze, squeezes out the middle guess who gets hurt? It's the agents who get hurt, because the agents make money off a percentage of every player contract they have, and if you've only got about a dozen or 30, I guess, guys out of 450 who are making gobs of money, they're all, you might not be able to split that evenly amongst all the agents out there, and then the rest of the agents are stuck making pennies on one and two and three million dollar contracts, so um, it's, it's in the agent's best interest also, who have a big influence over the union not to do this to take the cap off the max. I mean, it was in their best interest 15, 20 years ago to put it in in the first place, and a lot of members being in the room when they were talking about it and pushing for it as an agent. So, uh, yeah, I don't, see, I don't see that happening that way. I think the max is going to stay there. It might rise. It might be a higher percentage of the cap, but it's not going to get rid of
0: the middle class. Yeah, well, I think it's interesting that Lon Babby is the one that's talking about that when, granted, he mentioned guys like Luke Walton and others that he had as, you know, contracted clients and different um, players that were in that middle class to lower class contract-wise in the NBA. But for the most part, he was a power agent. He represented... 400 plus million dollars contractually between grant hill ray allen and tim duncan over the course of their career right. so so he was one of those guys where if he was getting his you know guys the max well all of his guys were max players i mean he wasn't representing you know the morris twins and tim but duncan also, and all those guys
1: but he also had guys even, even a few of them firm who were also no no i mean even in his own firm who were also trying to be player agents who would have been squeezed out because they'd have been barely making any money out on, the, on the riffraff left. So yeah, while Long was a power agent in his own right, um, you know it's it's a brotherhood of agents. They're all supposed to try to be looking out for each other because one of these days your guys are dead and you know and retired and all that, and, and uh, you've got to find new. Um, Big guys, and you don't want to have them been squeezed out yourself because of your own negotiations a few years earlier. So yeah. It's a big brotherhood. They're all covering each other's back. The agents are covering each other's back. The, the owners are covering each other's back, um, except for uh, Don Sterling. But anyway, um, and and they're all making money. It's all about revenues. And Lon said it at the very beginning. Let's be frank. It's all about revenue.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a butterfly effect with every little thing that gets... Done and every little intricacy. But so let's, we're, we're, the even more BS is going longer than the actual Lon Babby podcast. So let's, let's wrap yeah, things up. Yeah, I got up. to run here in a few minutes. Too. Yeah, let's, let's wrap things up with the draft stuff that you want to talk about a little bit. So things will change. This may not be exact science. This is, may be something subtly different when it actually gets finalized. But basically, the proposal is for teams that fall between seven and 10 to have an 8.5% chance of winning the lottery. And then Picks after that for non-playoff teams is 7%, 55 and 4% with all 14 teams having a 13% chance of landing in the top three. So kind of spreading it even a little bit more than what it is right now I mean, with like the 25% and the 19% for those top teams or I guess the bottom teams in the league. That that does change things a little bit because, hey, if you're the Phoenix Suns and you land at lucky number 13 or 14 like you seem to live in, that's their wheelhouse. If you end <laughs> up landing there again for the next couple of years with how deep and talented the West is, it's not really a shame that you win 45 or 50 games and you just miss the playoffs in the West. They might actually have a chance of jumping up and being top three in the lottery or, or moving up and having a you know a higher pick in the lottery with this new system.
1: Well, I think that's, uh, that's definitely something to consider, and it won't be – I mean, right now – it's it's the uh, it's terrible to finish in the tenth to fourteenth seed because you spent all this effort on trying to make the playoffs. You didn't quite get there, and now there's almost no chance to get a great draft pick, a difference-making draft pick. I mean, there's occasional difference-making draft picks after the tenth pick, but really they're not very common um, in in the percentage world of all draft picks. So yeah, absolutely, that's a huge uh, benefit for all. To every team but Philadelphia um, to go for this new lottery format and I think there's been speculation that I've seen that it, it should easily pass for this coming year so it'll hurt someone like a Philadelphia in that they'll have an equal chance on the top 6-7 teams of getting the number one pick rather than getting the lion's share of the percentage um, So you have less incentive to be awful and you have a little bit more incentive to actually fight them for the playoffs so I think that's a really good deal
0: yeah, basketball purgatory, um, or the eleven to 14, 11 to fifteen slot in the in the lottery slash NBA, is not a place where you want to live. Because well, especially today when you have teams bottoming out better than other teams that are trying to bottom out. Because you, if you look at it from last year, like the Lakers and the Celtics and Detroit and teams like that, they weren't necessarily trying to win a championship, but the way they bottomed out just wasn't as spectacular as maybe like Philadelphia and Milwaukee did. So when you don't bottom out as good as other teams do, then you fall into that six to eight range, that eight to ten range, then you fall in line with you're like, hey, we weren't really competing for the playoffs, we're getting a pick like a team that was kind of competing for the playoffs, and we're we're never gonna get better if we're drafting eight to twelve every single year because there's always one to two teams that were just a little bit better at being terrible at basketball than we were.
1: Exactly. So I think I think it's a great idea. I hope it goes
0: through. Yeah, definitely. And then you have a, a pick that ends up being able to be negotiated as, hey, this pick has a 4.5% chance of winning, 13% chance of falling into the top three. Worst case scenario, you're drafting 13th or 14th or wherever we're at. And then you can attach that into deals like we talked about before. The, the assets for 16 and 17 and 18 drafts respectively you know those start to become more valuable. The Suns have been stockpiling picks like bandits uh, over the past few years during the McDonough era, so they'll have a lot of picks to play with. They have a lot more assets that you don't see on paper on their roster page.
1: Yep, absolutely, I agree.
0: All right, so that's a wrap there. Any uh, any parting shots there, Dave? Any wise words for the brightsiders on even more BS?
1: Well, I just want to thank Lon for coming on. I know he uh, gave us a little bit of a ribbing for ranking him so low on the Suns rank uh, this year. And uh, I told him I ranked him higher uh, personally. (laughs) Uh, But I also told him it's a compliment after the podcast. I told him it's a compliment that he had a hand in acquiring almost every person above him on the Suns rank. I think he, he remembers, he recalls being ranked around 23rd or so. Um, and I just told him, "Hey, that's a compliment. You're above the Suns dancers, as far as I remember." So,
0: <laughs> yeah, this year, this year it was less fun. There was less like dancers and Hip Hop Squad and uh, Al McCoy and well, all that being ranked in the top players ten. That yeah, were
1: valuable, exactly. Players and coaches that were really valuable. So, a year ago, yeah, we we didn't know what we had.
0: Here's my takeaway from Lon Babby thinking that he well He joked and said he was like 65th or something on the Suns rank, which he wasn't. He was he was 23rd. Like (laughs) you said, here's my takeaway. Lon Babby looked at Suns rank.
1: I know that's awesome, isn't it? <laughs> that's that's that's
0: just my takeaway. He looked at Suns' rank, and I think that his goal is to uh, to continue being as lower as he can on that list there, just because that means that he's doing his job. I think that the less important he is to the Phoenix Suns' success in a current season, the more he did his job. There's no in-season negotiations. There's no well, big moves.
1: Exactly, because the less important he is, is to the casual fans like us, who don't really know what's going on behind the scenes. So. Absolutely. His position is behind the curtains and he knows it. And so, yes, the further down he goes, the better off the franchise is.
0: Absolutely. Two years ago, him and Robert Sarver were number one because it was their job to go out there and get Ryan McDonough and Jeff Hornacek. And man, they did a hell of a job doing that. So... That'll that'll do it. I got I got nothing else. We'll be back next week, hopefully with another big time guest uh, to break things down. The Pacific Division preview podcast portion should come back up this weekend. We're going to keep it a little bit shorter. The Clippers one ran long um, just because I was bad at looking at clocks. So we'll 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 come back with some Clipper or no Clippers talk with with just the, the Kings, the Warriors and the Lakers. We'll probably break that down this weekend. So look out for that podcast and then another big guest from the Suns next week. And that'll do it. So make sure to check this out. If you're not already listening on, tune in, you know, share, tell a friend, subscribe. Most importantly, we appreciate the listens and the follows there. Tell your fellow Suns fans that you know to get out and listen to the BS of the Suns podcast here on Bright Side of the Sun. We're going to continue to have players, front office, you know, national media. We're going to try and have guests as much as we can. And uh, as you saw with Lon Babby, you know, hopefully we can get some other people on here in the near future. We've had like Channing Frye and Kendall Marshall, Jared Dudley, you know, all kinds of different people in the past. So we'll continue doing that. Again, thanks for listening, whether it's on TuneIn or Brightside's website or wherever you found us. Um, We'll be on iTunes as soon as they like us. Thanks again.